Well, today is a great day here at Evangelistic Temple. This is the first time in six months we are holding a communion service. Amen. It's unbelievable that it's been that long, a half a year since we've had a communion service. And so this is a special day. And uh, that's going to be our focus today. And it's been so long, so long, I don't want us to lose focus of that. So that's where it's going to be today. I begin by reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 16 through 18. It says, then he delivered him to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. And for those of you who have been to Israel, you have seen that place on the hillside, the rock formation in the hillside does look like a skull. Even after all these years, it's still there. Verse 18 says, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. Verse 18, where they crucified him. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. It is alive. It is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able, O oh God, to even divide and separate the joints and the marrow, the soul and the spirit. And so we pray, O oh God, in this time, as we look at your word, that all of that life-giving, life-changing, life-transforming power will impact our lives today. We thank you in Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Crucifixion was a method of capital punishment used by the Roman Empire in which the victim was nailed to a large wooden beam that we refer to today as a cross. Sometimes they would just tie the victim to the beam. It accomplished the same thing, which was that victim's death. But the Romans used this and nailed the victim to a large wooden beam and left the victim to hang there perhaps for several days until eventual death. And this death came by exhaustion or asphyxiation, or simply because of the loss of blood. But nevertheless, the intent of the cross was the death of the victim. It was brutal. It was bloody. It was painful. And it brought upon the victim extreme physical suffering. Now, interestingly, 
This is what Jesus told us to remember him by. He didn't say remember me by the blind eyes that I opened. The deaf ears that I unstopped. The crippled that I made to walk again. Don't remember me by the 5,000 that I fed or the 4,000 that I fed with a couple of fish and a few rolls of bread. Don't remember me for walking on the water. Don't remember me for raising Lazarus from the dead or the widow's son from the dead or the centurion's daughter from the dead. He did not ask us to remember him by any of these great and marvelous works that he did. He said, remember me by my crucifixion. Remember me by my death and how I died. The Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 through 25. On the same night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus took the most brutalizing, the most excruciating, the most disgraceful, aspect of his life and told us to remember him by it. It's very interesting that he chose that above everything else. He could have used some of these other great things and great works that he did, but he didn't. Some of the other things that are more appealing, some of the other things that would perhaps uh, bring him more acclamation, more praise by human beings because of the great acts of kindness and good works that he did that human beings benefited from. But no, he uses the worst incident in his life and told us, remember me by that event. Now, <clears throat> when we are talking about the crucified victim and the condemned criminal, once he picked up his cross, there were certain things that happened automatically. And I was saying to the 8.30 service this morning, years ago, when I was a younger preacher, notice I said younger, I old yet, Close, but I ain't crossed the finish line yet. But as a younger preacher in reading and, and researching this whole thing about crucifixion, I came across these things that I want to mention to you now. And I think sometime in, in years past, I might have mentioned them in preaching uh, here at the temple as well. But I think they're applicable for what we're talking about today. 
Once the condemned criminal, and I want you to think about Jesus also when I, when I mentioned this, once the condemned criminal picked up his cross to carry it, there was no appeal. Once that sentence of crucifixion came down as a judgment, there was no appeal. There was no appeals court. There was no appeals judge. There were, there were no um, learned, smart lawyers. There was no privy counsel. There was nobody that you could appeal to. The sentence was going to be carried out. And listen, it was going to be carried out immediately. No appeal. Absolutely none. No one to appeal to. And secondly, once the criminal picked up his cross, there was no looking back. The only thing that that criminal saw was the road that led to the place of crucifixion. It was too late to think about what life could have been if I did not make this mistake or make that mistake or make the other mistake. It was too late to think about looking back at the crimes that were committed. The people that you might have murdered. It was too late to look back because there was absolutely nothing that could have changed. You were on your way to death. Crucifixion. Number three, there was no turning back. Even if you wanted to turn around and try and break off running, you couldn't do it. Because the Roman soldiers had you in their captivity. You had a beam or a cross on your back that you carried yourself to the place of crucifixion. And so there was absolutely no turning back. It was too late to go and say goodbye to mama. You didn't see mama while you were in prison waiting for your judgment time to come. It was too late. There's no turning back. No more goodbyes. If they didn't see you on the road to crucifixion, too late, too sad, too bad. No turning back. And number four, once the condemned criminal was nailed to that cross, there was no coming down. There was no changing of the mind of those who crucified you. There wasn't even an opportunity for somebody to say, you might be crucifying the wrong man. Uh-uh. No kind of justice like that in those days. Once you took up that cross, that was it. Once you were nailed to that cross, that was it. There was no coming down. And even though the enemies of Jesus said to him while he was hanging on the cross, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross and we will believe you. And even though Jesus was the only person who could have come down from a cross after being nailed to it, because he knew the purpose for him being nailed to that cross, he refused to listen to anything that they had to say. But the average criminal had no means whatsoever of coming down once being nailed to the cross. And so that brings me to number five. As a result of that, there was no escaping death. You were going to die. Death was certain. 
It was going to happen. And so once you were nailed there, you knew that eventually, in a short period of time, you'd be crossing Jordan, as we say. And the Romans had this thing, you see it in the scripture, that to honor Jewish festivals and Jewish holy days, that when a victim was crucified, as in Jesus' case, and the next day was a high holy Sabbath day, that meant that no victim could be hanging on a cross after sundown in honor of the Jewish Sabbath or holy Sabbath, high Sabbath day. And so, in order to make sure that that was honored, if the victim was not dead as sundown approached, then the Roman soldiers would break both legs of the victim. And as a result, he'll slump and the asphyxiation would become even worse and he would eventually choke to death, unable to breathe. And so death was certain. That was it. Death was absolutely certain. That's what Jesus told us to remember. Come on, man. You don't. Naturally speaking, death isn't something that you want to remember. Death is something that you have to remember. I'm talking about the death of somebody else now, not your own death. You know, somebody else is dying. You, you know, you, 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 we, we are almost forced to remember death. Because of how it affects our lives. The death of a loved one in particular. You live the rest of your life remembering the death of a loved one. A family member in particular or a very close friend. But we don't go around desiring to remember death. But that's what Jesus told us to remember him by. His death. Now the other thing that I want to mention to you as we prepare ourselves and walk towards the communion table today. The critics of Christianity say that it's a bloody religion. It's bloody. Y'all Christians, all y'all do is talk about blood. Your scriptures are filled with references about the blood of Jesus Christ. Still talking about death, still in that crucified vein now. But their criticism of, the, of, of, of Christianity is because of how many times and how much blood is referred to in our faith. You all sing about blood all the time. Oh, the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood. Nothing but the blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood. The blood, the blood, the blood, the blood. You sing about the blood. You preach about the blood. You preach sermons, whole sermons about the blood. You preach series of sermons about the blood. This bloody religion that you all have called Christianity. When you all pray, you use the blood in your praying. That sounds nonsensical to the unsaved person. You are praying and using the blood. 
Satan, the blood of Jesus is against you. You know, the blood of Jesus is against you. I come against your works by the power of the blood of Jesus. I cover sister so-and-so with the blood of Jesus. I cover my children as they go to school with the blood of Jesus. I cover my house with the blood of Jesus. I cover my office at work with the blood of Jesus. I cover my automobile as I drive it with the blood of Jesus. I cover my husband, I cover my wife as they go into a dangerous job with the blood of Jesus. That's all you all Christians do. The critics say and then you have authors Christian authors that write all these books millions of books down through the ages about the blood the blood of Jesus and then when you all go to church and do exactly what we are going to do in a little while again you'll talk about drinking the blood of Jesus that's why Jesus said unless you are spiritual you cannot discern these kinds of spiritual things but that's how some people feel about us as a Christian church and those of us who embrace the Christian faith blood 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 that's what Jesus told us to remember him by. You know, I, I, I love to preach about the other works of Jesus. The, the supernatural manifestation of the power of Jesus. You know, those, those made great sermons and great teachings in order to help us in our Christian faith, help us to grow, help us to mature, help us to learn the word and all that sort of stuff. All those things are wonderful, but Jesus said, remember me by my crucifixion, by my broken body, by my shed blood. All the other stuff are extras. And so, I'm going to leave you with a few things about the importance of the blood of Jesus. Now, these are not things that a lot of you have not heard before, but I want you to hear it in the context of Jesus telling us to remember him by this. Without the blood of Jesus, first of all, we have no forgiveness of sin. If you extract the blood of Jesus from your Christian faith, you are still in your sins. You will die and go to hell if you extract the blood of Jesus from what we believe. Because we cannot get to heaven without sins being forgiven. And if you remove the blood of Jesus from the equation, there is no forgiveness of sin. So we will forever live in sin, die and go to hell if there is no blood of Jesus. So when people talk nonsense about you all talking the blood of Jesus, you, you say it ten more times. The blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. Because that's how important it is to your Christian life and my Christian life. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says, In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In him, through his blood, we have the forgiveness of sins. That's the only means by which 
your sins and my sins can be forgiven. I'm talking about sins before we came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and the forgiveness of every sin that we committed after we, have, we came to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Nothing else provides, secures forgiveness from sin other than the blood of Jesus. And do you wonder why in most modern churches, they don't sing songs about the blood anymore. There are many churches, huge mega churches, in the United States of America in particular, that would not put a cross up anywhere on their property, anywhere in their church facilities. And if you think that's just happenstance, then you're mistaken. That's deceit. Because that is a work of the devil to distract people from the cross, from its work and from its power, and what happened on that cross by Jesus Christ. That's a major distraction. You see, if you, if you, if you are never confronted with the cross, you could never be saved. So I don't care how big your church is. If you are afraid that you are going to drive people away because you talk about the cross of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, then you're off. That's as much as I'll say. You're off. So we have no forgiveness of sin. No blood, no forgiveness of sin. Number two. Without the blood of Jesus, we have no redemption. Now, that's mentioned in Ephesians 1, 7, but I want to say something about that by itself. We have no redemption without the blood of Jesus. Now, in order to help us understand it a little bit more, and I'm sure a lot of you have heard it before, but I'm going to use the slavery analogy. And in using the slavery analogy, I am in no way endorsing slavery. But there's a picture of redemption that I want you to see. Back in the day, they had slave markets. As wicked and as evil as it was, nevertheless, it was reality. They had slave markets. And so they would bring these slaves, and I'm, I'm really making this very, very brief. There's a lot of stuff we could talk about. They would bring these slaves to the market and put them on display. And slave owners who wanted to purchase a slave or slaves would come to that slave market, look at the slaves, examine the slaves, males really, examine them and decide which one they want to purchase. The devil is a liar. That was pure wickedness. Pure wickedness. And I don't care if the people who did it said they were Christians. It was pure wickedness. But nevertheless, let me get back to the analogy, because I could go off on that in a hurry. And sometimes, a slave owner would be in the market. And a particular slave might appear to be sold or to be bought by the slave owner. And the slave owner... Looking at the slave, 
recognizes that I know this guy. As a matter of fact, he used to be my slave. Either he ran away, escaped, but was caught again by somebody else, or the slave owner, for some reason, just got rid of him. But all of a sudden now, this slave is back on the market again. And the slave owner says, I want him back. I want him back. I once owned him. I want him back. Well, then God created man. God created man in his image and in his likeness. Mankind belonged to God. Anything God created belongs to him. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, including man, mankind. And so that's how God created man. Man was God's creation. In his image, in his likeness, we were his. A slave master by the name of Lucifer came by. And to cut a long story short, push mankind into sin. And as a result of sin, man became Satan's slave. Slave to Satan, slave to sin. But the Bible says that God loved man. Oh, thank you, Jesus. You're going to cause me to preach. I... God loved man. And God couldn't stand seeing man on the slave market. God couldn't stand seeing man being sold out to somebody else. Somebody else that was, was, was uh, doing absolutely no good in his life. Destroying him if it's anything. And God's love for the one that he created was too strong and too passionate and too powerful that he couldn't stand to see his best creation, crown of his creation in that condition. So God decided, I'm going to buy him back. The reason why God had to buy us back is because man willingly turned himself over to Satan. He tricked Eve, but Adam went wholesale, with his eyes wide open. Okay? So, uh, God says, I got to get them back. I'm going to buy them back. And of course, again, to cut a longer, a longer story shorter, um, Jesus was the one in the conversation of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who decided that he was going to take upon himself a body like man and go down to man's place of residence and pay the price in order for God the Father to purchase man back to himself. And Jesus paid the price. That's redemption. I hate the slave analogy, but that's redemption. That's God buying us back, paying the ultimate price and buying us back to himself. Without the blood of Jesus, that's not possible. Without the blood of Jesus, there is no redemption. 
Without the blood of Jesus, we could never be bought back. We would have always been Satan's property. And whatever the outcome of that was, so be it. And so because of the blood of Jesus, he paid the price. If there's one thing I'm going to say to Jesus when I see him, whenever I see him, I don't know how long my turn is going to be for my turn to see him and talk to him. You know, it could be thousands of years before I reach him face to face, one on one. I don't know how it will operate, folks. I just talk in, okay? But one thing I'm going to say to him is, and I've said this to myself for years, thank you for paying the price. Thank you for paying the price. And then we'll talk about some other stuff. But thank you for paying the price. Let me move on quickly. The next thing, if we don't have, or without the blood of Jesus, we will have, or we have, no covenant with God. No covenant with God. A covenant is an agreement made, made between two or more parties with mutual benefits for both sides. God established a covenant with us through Jesus Christ. Everything that you pray for and ask God to do, every need that you have, every provision that God needs, you, you ask God to make in your life, everything that you ask him to provide, everything that you ask him to do for you, all of those are benefits of a covenant. We are beneficiaries of a covenant between God and us as Christian believers. So everything we receive from God is as a result of a covenant. And the only way that we can be beneficiaries of this covenant is because of the blood of Jesus. If there was no blood of Jesus, you could pray till thy kingdom come for something that's a part, a benefit of this covenant, and you will never get it. If there was no blood of Jesus. Not this new covenant. Now, if you look at some of the old, some of the covenants in the Old Testament, you might have been able to get something. But the new covenant? No, no, no. This one was written in blood. This one was cut in blood. This one was signed in blood. The blood of Jesus. No covenant with God. I didn't read my scripture on redemption, so you could read it yourself. Write it down. First Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19. But in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, it says, Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. No blood, no covenant. No covenant, no benefits. And so without the blood of Jesus, we would be a poor, helpless, hopeless people without covenant. Next, let me give you two more and then I'm going to wrap it up. Well, actually it's three more. Without the blood of Jesus, we have no victory over Satan. That's the foundation. That's the bottom line. In Revelation chapter 12, beginning I think at verse 9 or somewhere around there, it describes Satan as that old serpent, that deceiver, that dragon, the accuser of the brethren. That's the description of Satan. And it talks about 
those who at that time in a tribulation period, the devil was attacking them with the intent to destroy them, of course. And then the Bible tells us in verse 11, in that battle, in that struggle between those persons and the devil himself, that old serpent, the Bible says in verse 11, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Now that testimony could be about what God has done. That's all fine and good. But it could also be a testimony about the power of the blood of Jesus. And that's why when we engage in spiritual warfare, we use the blood of Jesus against the devil. And you can't be afraid and you can't be timid uh, to use it. When you are in, in a spiritual battle and you know the devil is on your case and you know what's happening is a work of the devil, your means of victory is the blood of Jesus. For God's sake, use it, pray it, speak it. The blood of Jesus. Satan, the blood of Jesus is against you. And do whatever else is necessary as you make application of the blood of Jesus in that time of spiritual warfare to whatever it is you are battling at that particular time. Because that's where your victory lies. That's the foundation of the victory. The blood of Jesus. Why do you, why do you think, why do you think the, the devil hates us talking about blood? Blood of Jesus. Because he knows it's power. And he knows his power, it's power to defeat him as well. So our victory is in the blood. If there is no blood of Jesus, we have no church of God. The church of God is non-existent without the blood of Jesus. And I told the early, the early service, if there is no blood of Jesus, then all of us might as well pack up and go home. Go find something else to do. Because we've wasted our time coming here. Because no church exists except by and through the blood of Jesus. If it was not for the blood of Jesus, this would be a vain exercise today. Let me give you scripture. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. The apostle Paul is speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus who were the pastors and the leaders of the church. And it says, therefore, he says to them, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's why sometimes even us, who are in church, whether we are leaders or whether we are those involved in the work and the ministry of the church, you have to always remember the church doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to me for sure. I know that. I didn't purchase the church. I didn't share a piece of drop of blood to purchase the church. And because he owns it, he has every right as to how it operates and functions. And if I get in the way, I'm history. You gonna kick me out, brother Kakula? 
That would be a right kicking out, by the way. So without the blood of Jesus, we have no church. Without the blood of Jesus, there is no evangelistic temple. Without the blood of Jesus, there is no other church on the face of this earth. But with the blood of Jesus, we are who we are. The church of God. And I'm not talking about the denomination. I'm talking about the universal church of God. Bible-believing church of God. The blood of Jesus. Now let me give you one more. Without the blood of Jesus, we have no access into the presence of God. Without the blood of Jesus, we would be shut out completely and totally from the presence of God. When we are praying, we talk about the presence of God, being in the presence of God. When we are worshiping, we talk about being in the presence of God. When the church of God comes together, we refer to that as being in the presence of God. Well, without the blood of Jesus, you and I would have no access to the presence of God. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament tabernacle built by Moses and the Old Testament temple built by King Solomon. Access into the holiest of holies was only granted once a year for the Jewish people and only one person could enter once a year and that was the high priest. And typologically, the only way the high priest could enter was to carry the blood of the sacrifice with him and sprinkle it on the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant. That's the only access man had in the temple of God into that holy of holies where the, listen, where the literal presence of God lived. I'm not talking about something figurative. The glory, the Shekinah, as we call it, the Shekinah glory of God lived between the outstretched arms of the seraphim above the Ark of the Covenant, and it could be seen. But only one person, once a year, with blood, had access to it. Now, here's what the blood did. Ha <laughs> ha! Here's what the blood did. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest. We aren't arrogant. We aren't full of pride. We aren't full of self. We are able to do it because of the blood of Jesus. Having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. That means at any time, on any day, I can access the presence of the living God. If I'm driving down Robinson Road in my car, if I'm sitting at my desk in the office, if I'm walking through the mall, if I'm mowing the grass in my yard, if I'm outside feeding my dogs, wherever I find myself because of the blood of Jesus, 
I can make my surrounding a temple of the living God and experience the presence of the living God with nothing to hinder me, nothing to stop me, nothing to prevent me because of the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ. I could be standing in the midst of my enemies all around me and I can transform that location into the presence of God. The manifested presence of God. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. We have access into the holiest of holies. The very presence of God because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Like one fellow would say, this is powerful. This is powerful. Let me say one more thing and then I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to get to the table. Do you realize that all of the prophets in the Old Testament and everyone before the shedding of the blood of Jesus, all of the great men and women of God never had this. Never had this. Oh, sure, they could pray. Sure, they could talk to God. Sure, they could have fellowship with God. I mean, that, 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 that happened, yes. But what we are talking about goes above and beyond all of that. Because as powerful as they might have been, men and women of God in the Old Testament, they could not go into the temple and go into the holiest of holies. They couldn't do it. But we can. We can. We can walk in wherever we are and his presence is there. You are more privileged than Isaiah the prophet. You are more privileged than Jeremiah the prophet. You are more privileged than Deborah, than Esther, and the rest of them. Because of the blood of Jesus. You know, in times gone by, when I found myself in situations where was in an environment where people were not friendly to me. And without them knowing a thing, without me saying a word, I transformed the spot into the presence of God. Because even though I may not have been able to say anything out loud, my spirit knew how to pray. Ha! And transformed. Even with people looking at me talking nonsense. Transformed. That spot. Into the very presence of God. All because of the blood of Jesus. 
And then you watch those devils trickle off. And so today, my beloved, after six months, we are able once again to remember our Lord and all that he did through his crucifixion, through the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. We are able to fellowship with him at his table once again.